0: From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny,
1: And I'm Benta Berkland. Our guest today is Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief for the Education News Service Chalkbeat Colorado. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, we're glad to have you, Erica. Erica used to be my editor at the uh, local news site Denverite. We have got two big topics today, and as you can guess, one of them is education, education funding especially, and the debate that's brewing over school budgets.
1: We're still in the middle of this historic legislative session, which has been completely changed because of COVID-19 and the restrictions in place there. That's what lawmakers were grappling with. And then in the middle of the session, it's changing yet again in the face of protests against racial injustice. And a lot of the protests are starting just outside the capitol my office overlooks those steps so does the house chamber and a lot of other legislative offices
0: it really is changing the face of the legislative session you're walking in to the building uh, past graffiti all across the base of the capitol with all kinds of messages some of the monuments around the Capitol have been marked or defaced in different ways, just hearing chants and shouts outside throughout the session really does lend a different kind of air and and underlines a bit of the importance of the work that they do inside the building.
2: I have two kids at home, um, and and so I've just hmm. been monitoring everything remotely, which is weird. as a weird way to cover <laughs> a legislative session. And I'm also a former cops reporter, and it feels really weird to be watching this absolutely historic kind of protest unfold and to not be there and to just be watching it unfold on largely on my twitter feed
0: i've been spending most of my time working remote as well and i gotta say on the days that i go into the Capitol, i feel great and invigorated for like an hour and then i just start to feel kind of like skeezy because that building uh, has so many different surfaces and and so many different ways to uh, transmit disease. So uh, it's a mixed bag being out there, Erica.
2: I feel like when I come back from the grocery store, I feel I feel kind of spent. And so I, I feel like if I was in the Capitol, it would be probably pretty exhausting to be thinking about that all the time.
1: One interesting procedural change I've noticed is that the process is changing how lawmakers debate bills inside the building. Typically mm-hmm. at the end of the session, and especially when things like the budget are going through we are accustomed to covering very late debates.
0: At two, three in the morning.
1: And that hasn't happened so far. Lawmakers are making sure to leave the Capitol building before it gets really late. They don't have their cars parked in the circle of the Capitol because the Senate president's truck was destroyed. And so they're parking a little bit off site. They're leaving mm-hmm. so much earlier and the debates are wrapping up. And I, I expect that to continue. And
2: mm-hmm. there was an interesting exchange um, at the end of second reading of the budget where It was about five o'clock and one of the Republican lawmakers said, hey, I've talked to state police. They say they can't guarantee our safety once we leave the building. If people want to gather in groups, we can we can sort of hustle off to our cars together. And then uh, Alec Garnett, who's the Democratic majority leader from Denver, stood up and said, hey, I've also talked to the state police right now. Everything's peaceful outside. You don't need to be worried. And then someone else actually couldn't recognize who it was behind their mask, but another a Democratic lawmaker stood up and said, also, if you want to gather in groups, we can also go out and join the protest. And so I think it really demonstrates that different perceptions of, of what is happening outside the building.
0: Normally, we do a segment called Hot Bills right here. We're going to skip the sound effect and change it up a little bit this week. Instead of talking about bills that are attracting the most attention on the legislative website, we're just going to talk about a few of the bills that are emerging from the pandemic and from the protests.
1: One of the bills we're talking about actually was just introduced, but is a hot bill. <laughs> it's one of the most accessed bills uh, now. It's a sweeping police accountability measure, and it was introduced Wednesday in the Senate. Democratic uh, Senate President Leroy Garcia and Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod are two of the main sponsors. Herod held a rally outside the Capitol the day before it was introduced. Black Lives
0: Matter! Black Lives Matter! matter! The initial version of this bill would actually do a lot if it were to pass. It would strip some of the legal immunity that police officers have from lawsuits and kind of civil action, although the state could backstop them and, and cover some of that. It could require officers to record everything and then force the police departments to make them public within a matter of days. And it could also ban officers from using chokeholds, including the kind that was used in the death of George Floyd. It's worth noting that every Democrat in the legislature is listed as a co-sponsor. That's pretty big, especially for such a sweeping piece of policy
2: there's a lot of variation around the country and what's allowed in mm. police departments use of force policies. And there is evidence that banning specific things that are particularly risky, including chokeholds really can have a diff make a difference in how many people die at police hands. I think there was a lot of hope when body cam technology first became widespread, that this was going to be the answer. What we have found is it really doesn't reduce police violence. And mm. we certainly have a lot of evidence from the last week of, police, let's say, not being inhibited by the fact that they were being recorded. Mm. We also have cases where police officers uh, turn off their body cameras. And so it does provide that piece of evidence. It, it can be important, but it hasn't been the game changer that I think a lot of people thought it would be.
0: You know, the natural result of these protests is going to be state legislatures and cities looking at this list of different policies. And maybe Colorado will end up having kind of a role in how that platform evolves nationally.
2: Yeah, I haven't necessarily seen other states respond as quickly with policy proposals, and so uh, I think I think that is interesting. I certainly um, I certainly don't think anyone's holding their breath for Congress to do something meaningful on the federal level.
0: Benta, what are you hearing around the state house about this bill?
2: To Erica's
1: point, a lot of states aren't in session right now. We just happen to be back at the legislature, so Democrats huh. who hold the majority in both chambers see this as an urgent issue they want to take action on. And now I've talked to some Republicans in the Senate who say they do support a lot of things in the bill and they want to come to the table. They do not want this to be a partisan bill on an issue this important at this moment in time. Mm. They support things like repealing the chokeholds and including requiring all police departments to have body cameras. And then there's another provision in the bill that would create this uniform list and criteria for how to keep records on police and officer misconduct. So providing more transparency.
0: And it sounds like there's also some Senate Republican support for this provision that would require a police officer to intervene if they witness another officer using excessive force, which arguably is what happened with the three other officers who watched this officer in Minneapolis kneeling on George Floyd's neck.
1: I think one of the biggest differences of opinions we're going to see And biggest fight will surround the level of immunity police officers and law enforcement Mm. officials have and the idea that people can sue individual officers. I I think Republicans on some of the provisions feel like let's not rush this through. This is too big. We want this to be a state solution, not just a Democratic solution, because they said law enforcement is willing and wants to, to come to the table like never before.
2: This really does feel to me like a different moment in that you have people who maybe in other situations would maybe defend the police officers actions or feel that it was a very complicated situation. It seems that that people from a very wide range of political perspectives look at what happened to George Floyd and it feels very unambiguous to them that that this was wrong. In terms of the session we all know that these problems, of course, predate this this particular death. These mm. problems have been happening for a long time. This feels mm. like the kind of bill that if it had been introduced in the beginning of the session and we didn't have these protests, this is the kind of bill that they would have tabled to focus on the pandemic legislation. We've seen mm. a, a ton of a really important bills to the Democrats be set aside so that they can get through this abbreviated session. But because of the level of protest, this is now an emergency on the same level as the pandemic. Wow, mm-hmm. that's
0: a great point. Yeah, and it, and it feels like this would have been one of like the key pillars of discussion for an entire session in a, in a more typical session. There are some other bills that will be introduced that are gonna be kind of in the shadow now of the police reform bill. And these are related to the pandemic. The Democrats Democrats are, are talking about introducing bills that would strengthen up eviction defense by Creating a new funding source for for attorneys to defend people from eviction proceedings, changing the unemployment program to expand the work share option and potentially suspending certain wage garnishments. Let's talk now about the other big thing that lawmakers just have to get done in the next couple of weeks. That is the state budget. And more specifically, we're going to talk about the education, the K-12 funding, and which is going to be one of the biggest parts of this conversation. And I'm really glad that we have Erica here to discuss it with us. Erica, how long have you been at Chalkbeat covering Colorado schools now?
2: About two and a half years now. And just to speak to the complexity of this issue... I I sort of feel like it's in the last year that I've started to have a better (laughs) grasp of it.
0: Erica and I both sat virtually through hours of joint budget committee hearings where they planned out the whole budget, and it felt like they talked about every other topic before they got to K-12 education, pensions and state tourism funding and uh, potential pay cuts for state employees. Until, at last, they really had to make a decision about how much money they were going to give and how much money they were going to cut for K-12 schools. And it really finally came to this, this almost anticlimactic moment where Senator Dominic Moreno read out the number that represented the total recommended spending for K-12 schools. $3,965,000,000.
2: That might sound like a big number, but it's a lot less than the state spent in this fiscal year. It's a lot less than they were planning to spend just a few months ago on the next Mm. fiscal year. So this represents a cut of about $724 million. Uh, Some of that is going to be offset by some cuts they made in another place, but this is an amount that we haven't seen since the Great Recession. So it's a potentially really substantial impact on schools.
1: Erica, education funding makes up a large part of the state's discretionary budgeting. Do you think educators and schools were anticipating cuts this deep?
2: I think, you know, the CFOs and the people who spend all day in the numbers knew it could be this bad, but I think. In the general public, and especially among sort of your rank-and-file teachers, I think there was a lot of shock at this number, thinking, how can they do this to us? People in the education world feel that education is chronically underfunded in Colorado. At the same time, it takes up a huge percentage of the general fund and is really crowding out a lot of other things that are also very important. I mean, A lot of human services um, that the state provides also took a cut in this budget process. Um, Higher ed took a huge cut. Um, So K-12 takes up 36% of the general fund, and the general fund, they're anticipating a 25% hit to it from this coronavirus downturn. And so you can see how the math isn't working out there. I mean, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of other great places to find $577 million.
0: And that kind of takes us right to the big question, which is where are they going to find it? Moreno said that as soon as he read that number, that big 10-digit number, his phone was just flooded with these text messages and questions. So two weeks later, what do we know about this cut and how it'll actually play out?
2: So there's still a lot of open questions about this. One thing to understand is that this cut could actually get larger. There's a bunch of pieces of legislation that also have to pass to balance the budget A big one is the senior homestead exemption. That's, I think, going to be very hard fought with Republicans. And so if some of these other budget cutting bills don't pass, they're going to have to come back. And there's really only two places left to take it, either from K-12 or to reduce the reserves even further.
1: Just really quickly, I think, to explain what the homestead property tax exemption is, if you are over the age of 65 and you've lived in your property for more than 10 years, you get a significant reduction in how that property is taxed. So a big portion of it is exempt from property taxes. And that's an issue we've seen the legislature debate and Republicans have opposed changing that exemption. There's also the impact of the federal CARES Act money. Governor Polis gave a half a billion of that federal money to schools. Originally, it appeared that the the federal dollars had to go directly to COVID-19 related expenses Does that offset some of the budget cuts?
2: So Governor Polis announced this allocation from the state's CARES Act money in the middle of the budget process, and it caught a lot of people off guard. This is a very large amount of money that I don't think most people were thinking was likely to go to education. And technically, legally speaking, it's not an offset. The state budget process is separate. In practical terms, it gives districts a pot of money that is almost equivalent to what they could be losing at the state level. But it does come with a bunch of restrictions. It does have to be used for things that somehow tie back to COVID. But Polis, and his executive order, worded this pretty broadly, and his intent was to give a lot of flexibility to districts. Some of the uses include facilitating distance learning facilitating social distancing when students are in school, um, mitigating lost learning, provision of economic support in connection with the emergency to <laughs> stimulate the economy by supporting Colorado's workforce by increasing free instructional hours. So he's con- he's explicitly connecting the return to school with the economic recovery. These kids are going to
0: be workers one day.
2: Yes. Um, and also their parents can go back to work if they're in school. That's true. But a lot of districts, they're very grateful for the money. At the same time, some of them are concerned. For example, can you just pay a teacher's salary with this money? They're not sure. (laughs) And it also has to be used by the end of the calendar year. Whereas, of course, just like the state, the districts operate on a fiscal year that starts July 1. And so there's some accounting challenges as well that they have to front load this money. I think there is some anxiety of are we really going to be able to use this in as open a way as has been presented? It also sets up a long term issue because, of course, we're not expecting a magical economic recovery. And so, districts are concerned that if the state has cut this much this year, that then becomes the starting point for mm. the, the next fiscal year. And we're not expecting another big pot of federal money for the 21 fiscal year. And so, There's that concern as well, that legislators are sort of letting their consciences be relieved that they're making these big cuts at the state level, but it's okay because they have this other pot of money. But what happens next year?
0: Let's wrap up with our final segment, which we do every week. It's known as, wait, what? And we just highlight a strange or unusual funny moment that we may have encountered during the week. And for me it's happening right now Uh, as we tape john hickenlooper's ethics hearing in front of the independent ethics commission is getting underway it's happening via webex and this is one of the most interesting (laughs) webex or zoom meetings i've ever seen the list of participants is filling up with familiar faces reporters at least one state senator (laughs) political operatives My computer is about to crash because there's so many people in this, and I think it is going to be an interesting day here.
1: The stories evolve from just what the underlying ethics complaint is as to whether Hickenlooper is going to show up and, you know, to this remote hearing.
0: I just saw his uh, campaign spokesperson joined the meeting, so maybe he is. I don't know. That is it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio, Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague Benta Berkland and Chalkbeat's Erica Meltzer. This episode was edited by Megan Verlee and produced by Shane Rumsey. Our executive producer is Rachel Estabrook. CPR's head of audio innovations is Brad Turner, who also composed our theme music. To follow along with everything we've talked about on this week's episode and more, find us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm
2: at Benta Berkland. And I'm at Meltzer E. And you can read more education news at co.chalkbeat.org.
1: We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News. So Andy, is Hickenlooper there yet?
0: I don't see a Hickenlooper in the participants list.